This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks everyone for taking the time to join me on today. And as always, a very special welcome to those of you joining us for the first time. We're going to continue with the memory lane segments uh, where I mentioned last week that I get requests from folks where they ask me, most notably, someone actually asked me, uh, and some of you may not believe this and you might not like it, but I'm, I'm willing to tell folks whatever. So I'm, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. And, and I believe in full disclosure. So I'm willing to tell people things, whether they're pleasant or whether they're not pleasant. And I do find a practical perspective in everything that I hear. Uh, some people say, oh, that's negative. No, it's not negative. It depends on how you frame it. it it's If it's truth, I just want truth because I know the value of truth. And I know that you can always devise some type of a constructive action out of truth. So whether something might be a little uncomfortable, whether it might be unpleasant, whether it might be great, whether it might be comfortable, whether it might give you the warm fuzzies, it really doesn't matter what it is. If if the information that we're sharing is going to vault you forward, especially if it requires you to have on your critical thinking hat, then by all means, then we want to, we want to present that. So Someone's always where I was going. People will constantly ask me about things that I have experienced that are not so um, palatable, if you will, not so comfortable, not so reassuring. Uh, they ask me because some people know that there's value in knowing such things. And I, I took this request. And when I took the request, I started thinking, you know what? I don't want to sit here and just talk about those things. I mean, I'm willing to do it. I know the value of it, but I also know that there's a greater value in not just sharing those things, but in talking about successes as well. I mean, hey, everybody listening to this podcast doesn't know me. And when you're listening to somebody that you don't know personally, it's very easy to take what they're saying the wrong way. So to give everybody a greater advantage, I decided to go ahead and present those things which will begin next week. But I also want to share some successes and there are lessons to be taken away, whether it's a good scenario or a bad scenario. So I wanted to have a very balanced wrestling with my words there, <laughs> but I wanted to, I wanted to give a balanced presentation. So for that reason, last week I shared three success stories, three memories, things that come to mind, over the course of my of my career, and we're going to present three more of those successes tonight, and then in the next two weeks, we're going to present two more sets of three, and memory lane is memory lane. I mean, you learn. You learn when, when you, whether you experience something that is a success, or you mentioned something that was a problem, or it was painful, 
There's always a takeaway. There's always something to learn. So that's what I want people to get out of this. But I wanted to help those who are listening for the first time to this little four-week series. I wanted people to understand. I want people to level set. I want people to understand where I'm coming from, what I'm talking about, and why I'm talking about it. And in presenting it this way and in prefacing it, I'm hoping to give people what they need cognitively to digest what's coming forth. So that's it. Let's get into the next set of three success stories and uh, and get our takeaways out of this. So there was a website working on a, a major redesign for a large automotive manufacturer. And, and as mentioned, I'm not going to share the names of any of these companies. And some people, they know me, they know who, who I'm talking about. Some people don't. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big uh, supporter of it's all about the what and not the who. It's not really, it doesn't really matter who it is we're talking about. No matter what we're talking about, it doesn't really matter because the principles the structure, the framework of what we're talking about is something that can be transferred or imputed into practically anything that anyone else is experiencing. And, and that's where we, the, the, that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So all you need to know is that it's a large corporate site. It's a, it's a big redesign project. And it is for, I did go a little bit far, farther by even saying this, it's for a large automotive manufacturer. There's at least 30 plus, 35 plus. So, you know, you figure out who it was uh, if you really care, but don't miss the message as I, as I constantly say. Now on this particular project, we happen to be working in tandem with a very prominent creative agency. The agency I was working for was prominent, but we were working for at that day and time was an extremely prominent agency, more of a household name than our agency. And, And this was a norm in an environment like that, because when you would do work at creative agencies, for those of you that have never worked in a creative agency, there are a lot of times where you don't have enough people to get the work done and you have to contract outside help either by hiring actual contractors or by bringing a third party agency to come in and work with you on the project. It was something that we did pretty frequently in this environment. And the client didn't have an issue with it. We saw the need. We present it. The client's going to pay for it. So we got to run it by the client. But we got this prominent agency. And the one funny thing about agencies, again, for those of you who have never worked at or with a, a an agency, especially large agencies, is that there's a lot of ego <laughs> that's tied into working with agencies. And no matter uh, how they came to be involved in your project, in a case such as this, you usually had to deal with the work and you had to deal with the ego. The mere fact that they were brought in, ego was going to be an issue. And I, I don't know why people didn't seem to be aware of that and seem to think that we were going to to excel in our work in conjunction with that because there ended up always being this competitive element associated with projects. Now, we did it often, but we didn't do it without problems. When <laughs> you work with these folks, there's problems. So so that's one thing I want to call out. So very normal normal arrangement to work like this, but it does come with its challenges. Just something else to keep in mind as I continue the story. Now, 
Usually when working with a creative agency, another thing I want to make note about that weird dynamic is that not only were you dealing with ego, but these agencies also had an interest in staking a claim. If they came in, if they were brought in to help on the project and they would shine, then that increased the odds that they were going to be able to get additional business anytime they needed another third party agency to come in and help out. So it's funny. We're at, we're on the front lines, but we're in this almost like a compromise situation that we have to try to make sure that we're striving to get the work done, but we have to make sure that we're working, that we're cooperating in a highly beneficial manner while not becoming victimized by what the third party agency was doing. This, this is a norm folks. I'm just telling folks about it. It's, it's a norm and I'm early, earlier stages of my UX career when I experienced something like this and it was really something to see and I got to learn a lot. Let's just put it that way. So during this project, the, this particular agency happened to be absolutely enamored with the ribbon navigation system. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. The ribbon navigation system that had just been introduced in Microsoft Office. Now, today, if you if you open up Word or Excel or PowerPoint, some of you, you just came in and you don't know anything but the ribbon. The ribbon, that whole big fat kind of navigational element at the top of the page, you have the menu and then you have the things that fly out that looks like little, little buttons and things of that nature. There was a day when that was not a part of of Microsoft Office's navigation. Well, this particular company, who happened to be very close <laughs> to the to Microsoft at the time, hint to the hint hint, um, this particular company thought that it would be uh, a win to take this navigational element that's in a software application. I know somebody's already laughing and you know where I'm going. They wanted to implement the ribbon on a dot com. Can you imagine opening up a website and seeing the same navigational element for your regular website experience that looks like something from Microsoft Office? So here I am. They're making their pitch on on using the ribbon. They had no data. They had no heuristic support to believe that that, that this was something that was worth our time, that it was something that was going to be feasible, that it was going to be workable. They never, not only did they never say anything about conducting any research, I never saw them lift their finger with regard to research at any time. Uh, worst case scenario was, was that was what we were going to do was take it to research. We would have found out it would have failed on, on a website. That, that, that kind of thing just doesn't work on the website. And not only did we uh, sort of give you a little bit of the end from the beginning, a tad, not only did this not get implemented, but you've never seen anything like it anywhere on the web. So if they ever tried to do it with anybody else, that didn't fly either. Well, this became a little bit of a challenge. And yes, this is, this is almost like a mix. This is almost like a, uh, it's just not a bad nightmare story, but it, it was a success at the end of the day, which is why I'm including it here. So no data, Nothing heuristic that supported the idea that they were pitching, but they proposed it anyway. And, and I also had a partner. There were two of us that were assigned in-house to work on this project. 
And she happened to be out the day that they were doing this. So I'm pretty much from a UX side, I'm by myself on this particular day. We have product owners. We have a couple other people who are there, but nobody on the UX side of the house. And here I am all by my lonesome in this situation that is, has all the potential in the world to become extremely volatile and a huge make break component in that. Again, can you imagine going to a website and seeing the same navigational structure labels and, and taxonomies aside, can you imagine going to a website and seeing something like that? It was absolutely ridiculous. So (laughs) nobody can picture that. So again, I'm by myself and I just had to step up to the plate And, and, and many, many of you will encounter no doubt at some point in time and many times in the course of your career, we're going to be in situations where we have to step up to the table and we have to go to bat. We have to represent, we have to advocate for users. We have to represent expert voice. And when it seems like all odds are against you, I had like three or four people from the partner agency, a product owner who's just looking to see what everybody is going to suggest, but they're not there to referee. It was my job. We, the company I worked at at that time was very, very good at making sure that the UX people felt empowered. And, and they, were, they were really good at making sure that we knew that we owned the user experience. That's something that people don't experience a lot. I mean, trying, anytime you try to do UX work, if your jurisdiction, if you will, if the level of your authority, if where you are, where you have the autonomy and ownership, if those things are not clear, trying to get your work done is going to be tough because you don't know where to assert yourself or better yet, you don't know where to assert yourself without consequences. And we're trying to not only when you, when we're doing UX work, we're not just doing the work, we're building relationships, we're managing relationships. We're trying to manage the UX maturity level. We're trying to accomplish a lot of things at the same time. It's not just the work as I always say. So here I am flying solo on this particular day. I mean, the person, my partner wasn't aware. I wasn't aware. We were all blindsided by it as a matter of fact, but I got up, I began to present reasons on the fly. No time to do regular UX research. Something I keep hearing this buzzword and that's a buzzword to me because people just bring it up and I'm like, did you really need to, I hear people talking about secondary research. I'm using the term a lot today too, but I hesitate to use it in many instances. I'm using it now because I'm communicating and I'm telling a story, but there's this, this really interesting thing that's happening in UX today. I, I've been saying since 2011 that UX is under siege and that siege continues. And one of the things that that UX siege or is reflective of UX siege is these people who are very, we have the fake it till you make it crowd, number one. Then you have the the buzzword centric folks where almost everything that comes out of their mouth is a buzzword. They're addicted to processes. You Once you've done UX for X amount of time, you're not paying attention to a process, folks. 
especially if you worked at multiple places, that will completely strip you of any dedication you have to a process. Because as soon as you go to another company, the chances, especially today, uh, the chances of that company doing things differently than what you've been exposed to is off the charts. So being buried into or over-invested in a certain process is bad. It's not going to help you to get the work done, bottom line. But I hear people talking about these buzzwords. Every, almost every other word is a buzzword. It's like they're not really even communicating as much as they are using the buzzword because they're familiar with it and they just happen to say it. It's not really even, it's not really even optimizing the communication. It's just, <laughs> the buzzword just comes out of their mouth. But at any rate, so for these people, secondary, things that you can research on the side, uh, uh, information that already exists that you can tap into. It's still research, but some people think of it as secondary research. I just call it all research. I don't, I'm not going to talk about mixed methods and qualitative and quantitative and try to specify. There's a time to do that, but I'm not going to do it every time I talk about research. It's all research. <laughs> so we don't, we don't need to specify that unless what you're doing is calling for that. Just a little a little tidbit there. So to count that as a little cognitive commercial, if you will. But at any rate, I get up and I, I, I did not have time to do secondary research. So I presented things from a heuristic perspective. I love heuristics. I think it should be the first thing out of every UX person's toolbox. And sadly, very few people know anything about heuristics or they go the buzz route, buzzword route and they mention it because they heard you say it but they really have no idea. That's what I mean by buzzwords. People mention something, but they really don't know or have any expertise with regard to what it is that they're, the, the buzzword that they're using. It's, it's not something that they, they can wield skillfully, if you will. So there were things I knew right then and there. So I began to make my case, knowing that the product owner, the person who, who owns the decision, we own the user experience, but that person owned the decision. And so now I knew that it was time for me to mediate. I knew it was time for me to negotiate. Those are skills associated with UX that people forget about or flat out don't know that we operate in. When I was done with my presentation, the product owner said, okay, that's it. We're not going with the ribbon. They completely shot it down. And today, 12 years later, so I just told you when it happens, you're going to go and look and see what company it was. I know somebody's going to do that. <laughs> uh, 12 years ago, that didn't happen. Today, it still hasn't happened. Matter of fact, the information architecture on that site has changed very little since we rolled out the new information architecture back in 2010. So, so we were very successful. My partner and I, we were very successful getting that done. Uh, and to this day, not many changes at all because we nailed it, but you will not see a ribbon. So this success story is, has to do with negotiation. It has to do with presentation. It has to do with mediation. It has to do with making sure that we advocate for users, that we're looking out for the best of the business, the best interest of the business, I should say. And a lot of you actually don't do that. Matter of fact, a lot of people in UX today are nothing more than order takers, especially people with the with the title of product designer. A lot of product designers are just order takers. 
if a lot of people, if they had been in the situation I was in, especially if they were alone in a situation where you were working with someone else prior to that, they would absolutely not know what to do. They would sit and just do whatever was dictated to them. When you do that, you are, you are violating the integrity of this discipline. We are not order takers. Never, ever, ever forget that and make sure that, that you have what you need to advocate for users the right way and look out for and seek the best interest of the business the entire time you're putting together that user experience. So that is success story number one for today. Success story number two. Now, this one's involved, uh, it involves a, a situation where I was working for a company. We were doing work for a, um, for a large I guess you could call them an industrial client. And I was brought in as a CX manager, customer experience manager. And one of the reasons that I was brought in was because none of the other CX managers knew anything about user experience. And the company thought that it would be in in their best interest to bring in somebody who knew something from the other side of the experience design house. So I was brought in to help drive CX, but from a more holistic perspective. And some of the things that they were addressing were digital in nature. And in some cases, they were digital plus process. And so that's why I, w- I was brought in. So I came in. Again, we're servicing. We're basically consultants, and we're servicing this very large industrial client. And... I was the first person on the team, again, that had a UX background. Now, I was excited about the position, as we all usually are when we start a position, and we have on rose-colored glasses whether we want to face that or not. And I did not realize that I was coming into a volatile situation because I was the paradigm shift. I represented a paradigm shift that was going to take place in this organization, a paradigm shift that folks weren't ready for. And I wasn't thinking about it because I was so happy that I was there that uh, I, I was I just simply wasn't thinking about anything. And, and and just to throw a little bit of slight nightmarish elements in there, when I started, the week after I started, two of the people that interviewed with me, two of the people that sold me on wanting to come to this company, because I'm like, wow, these are really great people. And I know that finding great people to work with is tough. It it. It, it um there's a lot of weird coworkers out here, uh, a lot of lot a lot of weird folks. Uh, I, I just say it uh, in corporate America, uh, around the world, Pierce, not just America, but there's a lot of people. They they're very they're buried in self interest. Uh, they're narcissists. Uh, abound in corporate workspaces. Um, man, uh, psychopaths. There there's a lot of things that can make your work experience go south in a hurry. And unfortunately, that happened to me in this particular situation. I interviewed with a couple of people that impressed me to the nth degree, only to find out that the week after I started, one of them was leaving and the other person transferred to a new group, including the person that was going to be my boss. And the boss that replaced them was not a stellar situation (laughs) the 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 um interpersonal expectations that i had went out the window completely 
So here I have the interpersonal connections from a leadership standpoint were gone. The I, I come in and find out that I'm the only person on the team because they didn't talk to me about that being the only UX person. I learned that after I came in. So I came in, find out, man, okay, I'm the only UX person in, in general. Okay, fine. Uh, am I going to help other people to become aware of certain things? I mean, what's going to happen here? I don't know. But uh, we'll just go ahead and we'll just do our thing and we'll we'll build from there. So that was my mindset. I'm, I'm here to do the work. I'm going to do the work. So it doesn't matter. That That's why I do everywhere I go. So I, I don't care. So, but as I began to immerse myself in the position, people saw me doing things they weren't familiar with. People began to question and cast aspersions about what I was doing and recommending, not because they knew better. They just weren't familiar. Uh, and, and, and let me pause, uh, digress again. I'm sure we've all heard before that mules talk about how mules are stubborn. And I don't think I ever talked about this before, but would you believe it if I told you mules actually are not stubborn? Mules are actually extremely smart. And what happens, and the reason why they get accused of being stubborn is because anytime somebody who owns or is responsible for the mule tries to get the mule to do something that they're not comfortable or familiar with, they start to push back. That's exactly what happened in this situation. These people were smart. They were talented. They were professional. They were skilled, but they were completely unfamiliar with what Darren Hood came and brought to the table. And so what mules do is then they start to, you try to get them to go somewhere, they don't go. You try to get them to do something, they won't do it. Not because they're being stubborn, but because you're trying to do something that they don't have a point of reference for. So it's a very mulish, truly, it's it's a, a true to nature. It's a mulish type of situation. And when you have that type of scenario, these people aren't doing it. You don't take it personally. Nobody's doing it to lash out at you. They just don't understand what in the world is, is going on. So again, they began to question. They began to cast aspersions. And now here I am, like in the crossfire between the other CX managers, my new manager, who was trying to turn me into somebody that I wasn't. I mean, it was really becoming uncomfortable. On top of that, people found out that I could do visual design and everybody wanted me to do their PowerPoint presentation to the point that that I had the the nickname I gave it to myself because I didn't like it <laughs> but I began to refer to myself as the king of PowerPoint and I was try I told my boss several times this is not what I want to do this is not why I came here this should be this an intern can do this why am I everybody loved what I did with the PowerPoint presentations they wanted their PowerPoints to look good so I was being inundated with PowerPoint presentations I was willing to do it because it helped the team, but on the other hand, it was very, very, uh, it wasn't satisfying. It was an intrinsically destructive, if you will. So, uh, and I kept saying, I'm the king of PowerPoint, and I guess he was laughing. I wasn't laughing. Every time I said it, I wasn't laughing. I was trying to let him know, we, uh, th this can't continue. We have to do something about this, uh, but uh, that message never, never got through. So, at any rate, um, so it's funny. I would assure them that what I was doing, these are going to work out fine. Uh, I didn't, other than demonstrating it in front of them with the client and with our end users, I couldn't, I didn't have any data to prove anything 
Uh, I basically had to ask them that the end of the day, I couldn't not do it because I knew that it was the right thing to do. And I had to ask them to trust me. It's a professional courtesy to ask somebody to trust you. I've actually, I've actually been, been, been chewed out for asking somebody to trust me before when it actually is, that's the way that that conversation goes when you know what you're doing and you don't have any, you can't, you're not talking to your kids. You can't make people do something. So you have to try to make some type of an appeal in certain settings. And I found that professional people will, will respond to your appeal and people that are not professional will turn it into something else. That's, that's what I have learned over the course of my years. But again, I assured him things would work out. And until we got a chance to present these things to the client and implement, there was not going to be any concrete data. They knew that as well. And I'm like, okay, we come out of these little meetings and I'm going to keep going forward. I'm not going to change what I'm doing simply because they're not familiar. And this is a, the underlying lesson is I've been giving you these little morals of the story with each of these. When you know what you're doing, you must stay the course. When you know what the outcome is going to be, you have to be steadfast. You cannot <laughs> find yourself backing off of something that you know to do that's the right thing to do. You cannot back off simply because somebody is uncomfortable, because somebody is not familiar. And when you work with people who are narcissistic, when you work with people that are gaslighters, when you work with people that are control freaks, that is a tough thing to do. I was fortunate in this case that I was able to keep going forward without experiencing any anything that was going to cause me to backtrack or do something less than what I knew was the right thing to do. I knew that it was going to work, and I continued to, to go forward. I mean, it's the only thing that I can say at that time. And once we got to that point, I figured we'll have the assurances. They'll see that what I was talking about was accurate. I'll, I will have earned the trust of the team at that point. And so, again, I, the exhortation at this point is to maintain your course, so to speak. So the day came to present my assessment, my recommendations, where we were overhauling their customer service, and I was making changes to the interface. I was making changes to the process. And, and uh, I, I, they saw, some people saw my presentation before we went before the client and I don't know about that, Darren. I don't know if we should do that, Darren. Oh, Darren, they're not used to this, and they're not used to that. When you are a user experience professional, especially when you have a lot of experience, we live inside of people's heads. And that was something that they weren't familiar with. We live inside of people's heads. And I knew what was going to happen. So I, I did my presentation. When the presentation was over, not only did the client do the equivalent of backflips, not only was the client ecstatic, happy and excited about the potential of implementing what I had presented. Not only that, but the team, when they saw that the client could relate to what I was talking about, when the client was able to finish talking about the expectations, if you implement this, here are the four things that are likely to happen in these environments based on what we know about the, the personas of the people who are working in these areas. They're going to receive it because of X, Y, and Z. We have, I have been doing all type of research with the team to understand. I wasn't just pulling these things out of my, uh, out of my, out of my rear. These were actual professional things, heuristically oriented things that I knew I was recommending. 
And when the team saw the reaction of the client, someone literally turned to me in that meeting and they did everything but hug me. They were so happy to see what I brought forth. And now they can actually see and touch what I was presenting because some people struggle when they can't see or touch it. And they got to the point where they could see it and touch it. And now they were embracing the paradigm shift that I was trying to present and what I was brought in to do to help drive this, this paradigm shift. Unfortunately, I didn't stay there very long after that uh, because you, just, you can only take so much of that kind of treatment and so much of being the king of PowerPoint coupled with nobody believes what you're doing and, and you're the only person going down that route. Yeah, it got a little tough, but it is another success story. Um, and the client was extremely happy. They weren't high, happy that I left. Uh, not long after that, but they were very happy with what I left with them, something that they can implement at their at their different facilities around the country. So happy times, uh, at least for somebody in that situation. <laughs> so when you know that you're doing the right thing, don't let somebody don't don't be intimidated. Don't allow people to drown you in their lack of confidence. Don't let anybody gaslight you, uh, which is really popular today. Um, stick the course, stay the course, do the right thing and, and be ready to things play out. You, you're successful. If you roll them out and you find out something else, iterate, make changes, but you have to do what you know, make sure that you learn what you should do and then implement, stick with that. Don't, don't shift. Uh, there's a lot of people void of confidence today. And they believe in fake it till you make it. That's highly, not only is it selfish, but it's highly destructive. And it does a lot of damage to the perception of the discipline. No UXer should be doing a fake it till you make it type of a type of an approach in the work that they're doing. If you're one of those people, you got to abandon that today. Story number three. And I'm going to try to move a little quickly with this one. But story number three. Uh, there was a company that I applied for multiple times. Never got any traction whatsoever. You already hear the underlying message there until I did. <laughs> I applied for this company more than one time and it just hit me one day. Apply again. And I applied. I got called in for the interview. I, actually, it was the only time in my career I've ever contracted as a UX professional, I started out as a contractor and then people kept trying to knock down the door, trying to hire me. So I was hired like a month later full time because they didn't want me going anywhere. I came to the door being the, the first person beside the manager. I was the first person that they hired that had prior UX experience in, in corporate spaces. The other people were, there were, this is actually where I began to formulate the posters, retrofits and upstarts. Uh, this is where I got an understanding of it because when I came aboard, there were people that were retrofits. There were people who were hired straight out of college. And then there were people who were retrofitted into positions. None of them were very confident. They were all very afraid because they lacked confidence. And, that's, and, and I've seen retrofits make it. I've seen some retrofits that are absolute nightmares. <laughs> but, but if you're a retrofit, be a retrofit. Just be a good retrofit and, and have a good retrofit story to tell later on, but don't, don't be like what happened here, but we'll share that later. Uh, not right now. So 
I was brought in to help bring some tangible credibility to the team's operation. And the first project I was tasked to work with involved the redesign of a globally facing training resource that was valued at, I mean, there was over a million dollars at stake. Over a million dollars was it was in line. Uh, matter of fact, in two of the three projects that I mentioned today, there was over there was multiple multi-million dollars in the first project that I was talking about. And there was um and there was a good 1.5 mil associated with this project that I'm talking about. Now, I don't know the dollar figure associated with the other one, so I, I can't really say. Uh, but they were invested enough in it. I know that. So the first project that I was tasked to do again, redesigning a globally facing training resource, the company had just come out of bankruptcy and leadership was not yet sold on UX. They didn't know what to expect from UX. They, somebody sold them enough to get the team going, but you know, retrofits, they didn't want to pay anybody. Uh, I was brought in as a contractor. Everybody else was full time, but they weren't ready to invest in UX and they didn't know what they were going to get out of it. So I, they handed me this. I came through the door. They handed me this project. And knowing this was a redesign, the very first thing that I did was to conduct a very thorough heuristic analysis. When I was done, I produced a report that was about 45 pages long, 45 pages of heuristic findings, roughly three, four, five findings for, per page. You do the math. Uh, so we're talking about at least somewhere in the vicinity of 175 to 200 findings that I came away with in that particular report. I was asked to present to the team, which I was more than happy to do. And what they didn't tell me, however, when I made, when I went to present this to the team on a conference call was that the C-suite was on the line. They wanted to hear what this new UX guy had to say about this training resource which is one of the biggest at that organization at the time. Well, I was very deliberate, which I normally tend to do when I'm doing a presentation. I fielded questions as I went. I walked through all of the findings. I closed. I shared my report with the, with the attendees. Now, shortly after this meeting was over, I received feedback pretty quick that one of the C-suite people was quoted as saying, that's what UX can do for us. They were sold. And I found out that the presentation was a huge success to the extent that our team, we received funding. They now supported UX and they expected to get that kind of an ROI from an impact perspective out of everybody else that came through the door, basically. But our team more than doubled. I want to say that it actually tripled in size in, in, in that particular location. After that, so a lot of great things happened. That resource was deployed. It's still top-notch type of application of its type. I'm not going to share what it is or who it is that was behind it. Um, and but it was a huge, huge success. And the the team received funding. <laughs> a little bit of a nightmare. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw this in here. Was that yeah? The team like doubled, almost tripled in size but the people that were brought in were not real UX folks. And I became like a marked man. So <laughs> nobody realized that some of those people got their jobs basically because of what I did. And the team was being supported because of what I did, but that's not how I was treated. So 
Um, yeah, that became a very short-lived scenario. We'll get again. We'll get into the nightmares next week. I guess I'm chomping at the bit to share those with you. But uh, I'm going to say this tonight as we get ready to wrap up: is that there may be nightmares, but I'm always laughing. People who know me know that I'm always smiling. There's no depressed person hidden behind that smile. That's me. Uh, I'm going to move forward no matter what. And and I encourage other people to do the same at all times. Uh, I hope that you found these success stories enlightening. I hope they, I hope they encourage you. I hope they reinforce your fortitude. That's what we want to do in sharing these. I was up against a lot of opposition in each one of these success stories. I was dealing with a lot of backlash in each one of these stories. I was alone, (laughs) actually, in each one of these stories and still came out on top. And I want to encourage you out there. Don't feel like you got to have everybody in your corner, but do feel like that you need to always be steadfast and maintain your fortitude. And and as I talked about when I did my TEDx talk, uh, excellence is a is a garrisoning force. And when you embrace excellence, people are going to come. They're going to they're going to not like what you're saying. They're not going to like what you're doing. They're not going to understand what you're doing. They're going to disagree with what you're doing. But if you embrace excellence, there's nothing that can stop you in moving forward. So coupled with everything else that I've I've said so far in this episode, make sure that you embrace excellence and, and it will take you a long way. UX is not a smooth road to travel. It is not. And even when you're doing your absolute best, there's always going to be something that will try to derail you. So please maintain your fortitude today. Please maintain your commitment. Please be sold out to excellence. And please, please, please embrace accurate and pure UX. And and when you do, you'll always be able to accomplish more than meets the eye. You'll always be able to accomplish more than what you think you're addressing in the work that you do and the people that you serve. And that's when you get this this really off-the-charts level of intrinsic satisfaction in the work that you do which is one of the main reasons why I love UX today because it is so satisfying to get things done and help out your users, your business, and to serve your team the right way. That's what we need to do today. That goes a long way and that helps establish UX and represent UX the way that it should be established and represented wherever you are. So folks, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, bring your seatbelt next week uh, because I'm going to hit you hard with three nightmarish kind of stories. Things that uh, I know when, when I tell the nightmare stories, a lot of times people say, oh, I've experienced that. And when they hear how I handled it, it encourages them. If you're one of those people that's in the market for toxic positivity, you're not going to want to listen <laughs> to that because I'm not I'm not selling any of that. Uh, today because that's very destructive and it's misleading and it's flat out disrespectful and we're not here to disrespect you today we're here to build you up and respect you so i hope everybody appreciates and understands that so that's all the time we have for today folks so until next time this is the host of the world of ux darren hood signing off happy uxing everybody
Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.